Section two of Redburn, his first voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Redburn, his first voyage, by Herman Melville. Chapters six through ten. Chapter six. He is initiated in the business of cleaning out the pig-pen and slushing down the topmast. By the time I got back to the ship, everything was in an uproar. The pea-jacket man was there, ordering about a good many men in the rigging, and people were bringing off chickens and pigs and beef and vegetables from the shore. Soon after, another man, in a striped calico shirt, a blue short jacket and beaver hat, made his appearance, and went to ordering about the man in the big pea-jacket. And at last the captain came up the side, and began to order about both of them. These two men turned out to be the first and second mates of the ship. Thinking to make friends with the second mate, I took out an old tortoise-shell snuff-box of my father's in which I had put a piece of Cavendish tobacco to look sailor-like, and offered the box to him very politely. He stared at me a moment, and then exclaimed, "'Do you think we take snuff aboard here, youngster?' "'No, no. No time for snuff-taking at sea. Don't let the old man see that snuff-box. Take my advice and pitch it overboard as quick as you can.' I told him it was not snuff, but tobacco, when he said he had plenty of tobacco of his own, and never carried any such nonsense about him as a tobacco-box. With that, he went off about his business, and left me feeling foolish enough. But I had reason to be glad he had acted thus, for if he had not, I think I should have offered my box to the chief mate, who in that case, from what I afterward learned of him, would have knocked me down, or done something else equally uncivil. As I was standing looking round me, the chief mate approached in a great hurry about something, and seeing me in his way, cried out, ashore with you you young loafer there's no stealings here sail away i tell you with that shooting jacket upon this i retreated saying that i was going out in the ship as a sailor a sailor he cried a barber's clerk you mean you going out in the ship what in that jacket hang me i hope the old man hasn't been shipping any more greenhorns like you He'll make a shipwreck of it if he has. But this is the way nowadays, to save a few dollars in seamen's wages. They think nothing of shipping a parcel of farmers and clodhoppers and baby boys. What's your name, Pillgarlic? Redburn, said I. A pretty handle to a man, that. Scorch you to take hold of it. Haven't you got any other? Wellingborough, said I worse yet who had the baptizing of you why didn't they call you jack or jill or something short and handy but i'll baptize you over again do you hear sir henceforth your name is buttons and now do you go buttons and clean out that pig-pen in the long-boat it has not been cleaned out since last voyage and bear a hand about it do you hear there's them pigs there waiting to be put in Come, be off about it now. 
was this then the beginning of my sea career set to cleaning out a pig-pen the very first thing but i thought it best to say nothing i had bound myself to obey orders and it was too late to retreat so i only asked for a shovel or spade or something else to work with we don't dig gardens here was the reply dig it out with your teeth after looking round i found a stick and went to scraping out the pen which was awkward work enough for another boat called the jolly boat was capsized right over the long boat which brought them almost close together these two boats were in the middle of the deck i managed to crawl inside of the long boat and after barking my shins against the seats and bumping my head a good many times i got along to the stern where the pig-pen was while i was hard at work a drunken sailor peeped in and cried out to his comrades look here my lads what sort of a pig do you call this hello inside there what are you about there trying to stow yourself away to steal a passage to liverpool out of that out of that i say but just then the mate came along and ordered this drunken rascal ashore the pig-pen being cleaned out i was set to work picking up some shavings which lay about the deck for there had been carpenters at work on board the mate ordered me to throw these shavings into the longboat at a particular place between two of the seats but as i found it hard work to push the shavings through in that place and as it looked wet there i thought it would be better for the shavings as well as myself to thrust them where there was a larger opening and a dry spot while i was thus employed the mate observing me exclaimed with an oath didn't i tell you to put those shavings somewhere else do what i tell you now buttons or mind your eye stifling my indignation at his rudeness which by this time i found was my only plan i replied that that was not so good a place for the shavings as that which i myself had selected and asked him to tell me why he wanted me to put them in the place he designated upon this he flew into a terrible rage and without explanation reiterated his order like a clap of thunder this was my first lesson in the discipline of the sea and i never forgot it from that time i learned that sea officers never gave reasons for anything they order to be done it is enough that they command it so that the motto is obey orders though you break owners i now began to feel very faint and sick again and longed for the ship to be leaving the dock for then i made no doubt we would soon be having something to eat but as yet i saw none of the sailors on board and as for the men at work in the rigging i found out that they were riggers that is men living ashore who worked by the day in getting ships ready for sea and this i found out to my cost for yielding to the kind blandishment of one of these riggers i had swapped away my jackknife with him for a much poorer one of his own thinking to secure a sailor friend for the voyage at last i watched my chance and while people's backs were turned i seized a carrot from several bunches lying on deck and clapping it under the skirts of my shooting jacket went forward to eat it for i had often eaten raw carrots which taste something like chestnuts this carrot refreshed me a good deal though at the expense of a little pain in my stomach hardly had i disposed of it when i heard the chief mate's voice crying out for buttons i ran after him 
and received an order to go aloft and slush down the main topmast. This was all Greek to me, and after receiving the order I stood staring about me, wondering what it was that was to be done. But the mate had turned on his heel and made no explanations. At length I followed after him and asked what I must do. "'Didn't I tell you to slush down the main topmast?' he shouted. "'You did,' said I. "'But I don't know what that means.' "'Green as grass. A regular cabbage-head,' he exclaimed to himself. "'A fine time I'll have with such a greenhorn aboard. "'Look you, youngster. Look up to that long pole there. Do you see it? "'That piece of a tree there, you timber-head. "'Well, take this bucket here and go up the rigging, that rope-ladder there. Do you understand? "'And dab this slush all over the mast, and look out for your head if one drop falls on deck.' Be off now, Buttons. The eventful hour had arrived. For the first time in my life I was to ascend a ship's mast. Had I been well and hearty, perhaps I should have felt a little shaky at the thought. But as I was then weak and faint, the bare thought appalled me. But there was no hanging back. It would look like cowardice, and I could not bring myself to confess that I was suffering for want of food. So, rallying again, I took up the bucket. It was a heavy bucket, with strong iron hoops, and might have held perhaps two gallons, but it was only half full now of a sort of thick lobbered gravy, which I afterward learned was boiled out of the salt beef used by the sailors. Upon getting into the rigging, I found it was no easy job to carry this heavy bucket up with me. The rope handle of it was so slippery with grease that although I twisted it several times about my wrist, it would be still twirling round and round and slipping off. Spite of this, however, I managed to mount as far as the top, the clumsy bucket half the time straddling and swinging about between my legs, and in momentary danger of capsizing. Arrived at the top, I came to a dead halt and looked up. How to surmount that overhanging impediment completely posed me for the time, but at last, with much straining, I contrived to place my bucket in the top, and then, trusting to providence, swung myself up after it. The rest of the road was comparatively easy, though whenever I incautiously looked down toward the deck, my head spun round so from weakness that I was obliged to shut my eyes to recover myself. I do not remember much more. I only recollect my safe return to the deck. In a short time, the bustle of the ship increased. The trunks of cabin passengers arrived, and the chests and boxes of the steerage passengers, besides baskets of wine and fruit for the captain. At last we cast loose, and swinging out into the stream came to anchor, and hoisted the signal for sailing. Everything, it seemed, was on board but the crew, who, in a few hours after, came off one by one in Whitehall boats, their chests in the bow, and themselves lying back in the stern like lords, and showing very plainly the complacency they felt in keeping the whole ship waiting for their lordships. "'Aye, aye,' muttered the chief mate, as they rolled out of their boats and swaggered on deck. "'It's your turn now, but it will be mine before long. Yaw about while you may, my hearties. I'll do the yawing after the anchor's up. Several of the sailors were very drunk, and one of them was lifted on board insensible by his landlord, 
who carried him down below and dumped him into a bunk, and two other sailors, as soon as they made their appearance, immediately went below to sleep off the fumes of their drink. At last, all the crew being on board, word was passed to go to dinner fore and aft, an order that made my heart jump with delight, for now my long fast would be broken. But, though the sailors, surfeited with eating and drinking ashore, did not then touch the salt beef and potatoes which the black cook handed down into the forecastle, and though this left the whole allowance to me, to my surprise I found that I could eat little or nothing, for now I only felt deadly faint, but not hungry. CHAPTER Seven. HE GETS TO SEA, AND FEELS VERY BAD. Everything at last being in readiness, the pilot came on board, and all hands were called to up anchor. While I worked at my bar, I could not help observing how haggard the men looked, and how much they suffered from this violent exercise after the terrific dissipation in which they had been indulging ashore. But I soon learnt that sailors breathed nothing about such things, but strived their best to appear all alive and hearty, though it comes very hard for many of them. The anchor being secured, a steam tugboat with a strong name, the Hercules, took hold of us, and away we went past the long line of shipping and wharves and warehouses, and rounded the green south point of the island where the battery is, and past Governor's Island, and pointed right out for the Narrows. My heart was like lead, and I felt bad enough, heaven knows, but then there was plenty of work to be done which kept my thoughts from becoming too much for me and I tried to think all the time that I was going to England, and that before many months I should have actually been there and home again, telling my adventures to my brothers and sisters, and with what delight they would listen, and how they would look up to me then, and reverence my sayings, and how that even my elder brother would be forced to treat me with great consideration, as having crossed the Atlantic Ocean which he had never done, and there was no probability he ever would with such thoughts as these i endeavoured to shake off my heavy-heartedness but it would not do at all for this was only the first day of the voyage and many weeks nay several whole months must elapse before the voyage was ended and who could tell what might happen to me for when i looked up at the high giddy masts and thought how often i must be going up and down them i thought sure enough that some luckless day or other I would certainly fall overboard and be drowned. And then I thought of lying down at the bottom of the sea, stark alone, with the great waves rolling over me, and no one in the wide world knowing that I was there. And I thought how much better and sweeter it must be to be buried under the pleasant hedge that bounded the sunny south side of our village graveyard, where every Sunday I had used to walk after church in the afternoon, and I almost wished I was there now. Yes, dead and buried in that churchyard. All the time my eyes were filled with tears, and I kept holding my breath to choke down the sobs, for indeed I could not help feeling as I did, and no doubt any boy in the world would have felt just as I did then. As the steamer carried us further and further down the bay, and we passed ships lying at anchor, with men gazing at us and waving their hats, and small boats with ladies in them waving their handkerchiefs, and passed the green shore of Staten Island, and caught sight of so many beautiful cottages all overrun with vines, and planted on the beautiful fresh mossy hillsides, 
oh then i would have given anything if instead of sailing out of the bay we were only coming into it if we had crossed the ocean and returned gone over and come back and my heart leaped up in me like something alive when i thought of really entering that bay at the end of the voyage but that was so far distant that it seemed it could never be no never never more would i see new york again and what shocked me more than anything else was to hear some of the sailors while they were at work coiling away the hawsers talking about the boarding-houses they were going to when they came back and how that some friends of theirs had promised to be on the wharf when the ship returned to take them and their chests right up to franklin square where they lived and how that they would have a good dinner ready and plenty of cigars and spirits out on the balcony i say this land of talking shocked me for they did not seem to consider as i did that before anything like that could happen we must cross the great atlantic ocean cross over from america to europe and back again many thousand miles of foaming ocean at that time i did not know what to make of these sailors but this much i thought that when they were boys they could never have gone to the sunday school for they swore so it made my ears tingle and used words that i never could hear without a dreadful loathing and are these the men i thought to myself that i must live with so long these the men i am to eat with and sleep with all the time and besides i now began to see that they were not going to be very kind to me but i will tell all about that when the proper time comes now you must not think that because all these things were passing through my mind that i had nothing to do but sit still and think no no i was hard at work for as long as the steamer had hold of us we were very busy coiling away ropes and cables and putting the decks in order which were littered all over with odds and ends of things that had to be put away at last we got as far as the narrows which everybody knows is the entrance to new york harbor from sea and it may well be called the narrows for when you go in or out it seems like going in or out of a doorway and when you go out of these narrows on a long voyage like this of mine it seems like going out into the broad highway where not a soul is to be seen for far away and away stretches the great atlantic ocean and all you can see beyond it where the sky comes down to the water it looks lonely and desolate enough and i could hardly believe as i gazed around me that there could be any land beyond or any place like europe or england or liverpool in the great wide world it seemed too strange and wonderful and altogether incredible that there could really be cities and towns and villages and green fields and hedges and farmyards and orchards away over that wide blank of sea and away beyond the place where the sky came down to the water and to think of steering right out among those waves and leaving the bright land behind and the dark night coming on too seemed wild and foolhardy and i looked with a sort of fear at the sailor standing by me who could be so thoughtless at such a time but then i remembered how many times my own father had said he had crossed the ocean and i had never dreamed of such a thing as doubting him for i always thought him a marvellous being infinitely purer and greater than i was who could not by any possibility do wrong or say an untruth yet now how could i credit it that he my own father whom i so well remembered 
had ever sailed out of these narrows and sailed right through the sky and waterline and gone to england and france liverpool and marseilles it was too wonderful to believe now on the right side of the narrows as you go out the land is quite high and on the top of a fine cliff is a great castle or fort all in ruins and with the trees growing round it it was built by governor tompkins in the time of the last war with england but was never used i believe and so they left it to decay i had visited the place once when we lived in new york as long ago almost as i could remember with my father and an uncle of mine an old sea captain with white hair who used to sail to a place called archangel in russia and who used to tell me that he was with captain langsdorff when captain langsdorff crossed over by land from the sea of okotsk in asia to st petersburg drawn by large dogs in a sled i mentioned this of my uncle because he was the very first sea captain i had ever seen and his white hair and fine handsome florid face made so strong an impression upon me that i have never forgotten him though i only saw him during this one visit of his to new york for he was lost in the white sea some years after but i meant to speak about the fort it was a beautiful place as i remembered it and very wonderful and romantic too as it appeared to me when i went there with my uncle on the side away from the water was a green grove of trees very thick and shady and through this grove in a sort of twilight you came to an arch in the wall of the fort dark as night and going in you groped about in long vaults twisting and turning on every side till at last you caught a peep of green grass and sunlight and all at once came out in an open space in the middle of the castle and there you would see cows quietly grazing or ruminating under the shade of young trees and perhaps a calf frisking about and trying to catch its own tail and sheep clambering among the mossy ruins and cropping the little tufts of grass sprouting out of the sides of the embrasures for cannon and once i saw a black goat with a long beard and crumpled horns standing with his forefeet lifted high up on the topmost parapet and looking to see as if he were watching for a ship that was bringing over his cousin i can see him even now and though i have changed since then the black goat looks just the same as ever and so i suppose he would if i lived to be as old as methuselah and have as great a memory as he must have had yes the fort was a beautiful quiet charming spot i should like to build a little cottage in the middle of it and live there all my life it was noonday when i was there in the month of june and there was little wind to stir the trees and everything looked as if it was waiting for something and the sky overhead was blue as my mother's eye and i was so glad and happy then but i must not think of those delightful days before my father became a bankrupt and died and we removed from the city for when i think of those days something rises up in my throat and almost strangles me now as we sailed through the narrows i caught sight of that beautiful fort on the cliff and could not help contrasting my situation now with what it was when with my father and uncle i went there so long ago then i never thought of working for my living and never knew that there were hard hearts in the world and knew so little of money that when i bought a stick of candy and laid down a sixpence 
I thought the confectioner returned five cents, only that I might have money to buy something else, and not because the pennies were my change, and therefore mine by good rights. How different my idea of money now! Then I was a schoolboy, and thought of going to college in time, and had vague thoughts of becoming a great orator, like Patrick Henry, whose speeches I used to speak on the stage. But now I was a poor, friendless boy, far away from my home, and voluntarily in the way of becoming a miserable sailor for life. And what made it more bitter to me was to think of how well off were my cousins, who were happy and rich, and lived at home with my uncles and aunts, with no thought of going to sea for a living. I tried to think that it was all a dream, that I was not where I was, not on board of a ship, but that I was at home again in the city with my father alive, and my mother bright and happy as she used to be. But it would not do. I was indeed where I was, and here was the ship, and there was the fort. So, after casting a last look at some boys who were standing on the parapet, gazing off to sea, I turned away heavily, and resolved not to look at the land any more. About sunset we got fairly outside, and well may it so be called, for I felt thrust out of the world. Then the breeze began to blow, and the sails were loosed and hoisted, and after a while the steamboat left us, and for the first time I felt the ship roll, a strange feeling enough, as if it were a great barrel in the water. Shortly after, I observed a swift little schooner running across our bows and recrossing again and again. And while I was wondering what she could be, she suddenly lowered her sails, and two men took hold of a little boat on her deck and launched it overboard as if it had been a chip. Then I noticed that our pilot, a red-faced man in a rough blue coat, who, to my astonishment, had all this time been giving orders instead of the captain, began to button up his coat to the throat, like a prudent person about leaving a house at night in a lonely square to go home. And he left the giving orders to the chief mate, and stood apart talking with the captain, and put his hand into his pocket, and gave him some newspapers. And in a few minutes, when we had stopped our headway, and allowed the little boat to come alongside, he shook hands with the captain and officers, and bade them good-bye, without saying a syllable of farewell to me and the sailors. And so he went laughing over the side, and got into the boat, and they pulled him off to the schooner. And then the schooner made sail, and glided under our stern, her men standing up and waving their hats and cheering. And that was the last we saw of America. CHAPTER Eight. He is put into the larboard watch, gets seasick, and relates some other of his experiences. It was now getting dark, when all at once the sailors were ordered on the quarter-deck, and of course I went along with them. What is to come now, thought I, but I soon found out. It seemed we were going to be divided into watches. The chief mate began by selecting a stout, good-looking sailor for his watch, and then the second mate's turn came to choose, and he also chose a stout, good-looking sailor. But it was not me. No. And I noticed, as they went on choosing, one after the other in regular rotation, that both of the mates never so much as looked at me, but kept going round among the rest, peering into their faces, for it was dusk, and telling them not to hide themselves away so in their jackets. 
but the sailors especially the stout good-looking ones seemed to make a point of lounging as much out of the way as possible and slouching their hats over their eyes and although it may only be a fancy of mine i certainly thought that they affected a sort of lordly indifference as to whose watch they were going to be in and did not think it worth while to look any way anxious about the matter and the very men who a few minutes before had showed the most alacrity and promptitude in jumping into the rigging and running aloft at the word of command now lounged against the bulwarks and most lazily as if they were quite sure that by this time the officers must know who the best men were and they valued themselves well enough to be willing to put the officers to the trouble of searching them out for if they were worth having they were worth seeking at last they were all chosen but me and it was the chief mate's next turn to choose though there could be little choosing in my case since i was a thirteener and must whether or no go over to the next column like the odd figure you carry along when you do a sum in addition well buttons said the chief mate i thought i'd got rid of you and as it is mr riggs he added speaking to the second mate i guess you had better take him into your watch there i'll let you have him and then you'll be one stronger than me no thank you said mr riggs you had better said the chief mate see he's not a bad-looking chap he's a little green to be sure but you were so once yourself you know riggs no i thank you said the second mate again take him yourself he's yours by good rights i don't want him and so they put me in the chief mate's division that is the larboard watch while this scene was going on i felt shabby enough there i stood just like a silly sheep over whom two butchers are bargaining nothing that had yet happened so forcibly reminded me of where i was and what i had come to i was very glad when they sent us forward again as we were going forward the second mate called one of the sailors by name you bill and bill answered sir just as if the second mate was a born gentleman it surprised me not a little to see a man in such a shabby shaggy old jacket addressed so respectfully but i had been quite as much surprised when i heard the chief mate call him mr riggs during the scene on the quarter-deck as if this mr riggs was a great merchant living in a marble house in lafayette palace but i was not very long in finding out that at sea all officers are misters and would take it for an insult if any seaman presumed to omit calling them so and it is also one of their rights and privileges to be called sir when addressed yes sir no sir ay ay sir and they are as particular about being sirred as so many knights and baronets though their titles are not hereditary as is the case with the sir johns and sir joshuas in england but so far as the second mate is concerned his tides are the only dignities he enjoys for upon the whole he leads a puppyish wee indeed he is not deemed company at any time for the captain though the chief mate occasionally is at least deck company though not in the cabin and besides this the second mate has to breakfast lunch dine and sup off the leavings of the cabin table 
and even the steward, who is accountable to nobody but the captain, sometimes treats him cavalierly, and he has to run aloft when topsails are reefed, and put his hand a good way down into the tar-bucket, and keep the key of the boatswain's locker, and fetch and carry balls of marlene and seizing stuff for the sailors when at work in the rigging, besides doing many other things which a true-born baronet of any spirit would rather die and give up his title than stand. Having been divided into watches, we were sent to supper, but I could not eat anything except a little biscuit, though I should have liked to have some good tea. But as I had no pot to get it in, and was rather nervous about asking the rough sailors to let me drink out of theirs, I was obliged to go without a sip. I thought of going to the black cook and begging a tin cup, but he looked so cross and ugly then, that the sight of him almost frightened the idea out of me. When supper was over, for they never talk about going to tea aboard of a ship, the watch to which I belonged was called on deck, and we were told it was for us to stand the first night watch, that is, from eight o'clock till midnight. I now began to feel unsettled and ill at ease about the stomach, as if matters were all topsy-turvy there, and felt strange and giddy about the head and so I made no doubt that this was the beginning of that dreadful thing, the seasickness. Feeling worse and worse, I told one of the sailors how it was with me, and begged him to make my excuses very civilly to the chief mate, for I thought I would go below and spend the night in my bunk. But he only laughed at me, and said something about my mother not being aware of my being out, which enraged me not a little that a man whom I had heard swear so terribly should dare to take such a holy name into his mouth. It seemed a sort of blasphemy, and it seemed like dragging out the best and most cherished secrets of my soul, for at that time the name of mother was the center of all my heart's finest feelings, which ere that I had learned to keep secret deep down in my being. But I did not outwardly resent the sailor's words, for that would have only made the matter worse. Now, this man was a Greenlander by birth, with a very white skin where the sun had not burnt it, and handsome blue eyes placed wide apart in his head, and a broad, good-humoured face, and plenty of curly flaxen hair. He was not very tall, but exceedingly stout-built, though active, and his back was as broad as a shield, and it was a great way between his shoulders. He seemed to be a sort of ladies' sailor for in his broken english he was always talking about the nice ladies of his acquaintance in stockholm and copenhagen and a place he called the hook which at first i fancied must be the place where lived the hook-nosed men that caught fowling pieces and every other article that came along he was dressed very tastefully too as if he knew he was a good-looking fellow he had on a new blue woolen havre frock with a new silk handkerchief round his neck passed through one of the vertebral bones of a shark highly polished and carved his trousers were of clear white duck and he sported a handsome pair of pumps and a tarpaulin hat bright as a looking-glass with a long black ribbon streaming behind and getting entangled every now and then in the rigging and he had gold anchors in his ears and a silver ring on one of his fingers which was very much worn and bent from pulling ropes and other work on board ship I thought he might better have left his jewellery at home. 
It was a long time before I could believe that this man was really from Greenland, though he looked strange enough to me, then, to have come from the moon, and he was full of stories about that distant country, how they passed the winters there, and how bitter cold it was, and how he used to go to bed and sleep twelve hours, and get up again and run about, and go to bed again and get up again. There was no telling how many times, and all in one night. For in the winter time in his country, he said, the nights were so many weeks long that a Greenland baby was sometimes three months old before it could properly be said to be a day old. I had seen mention made of such things before in books of voyages, but that was only reading about them, just as you read the Arabian Nights, which no one ever believes. For somehow, when I read about these wonderful countries, I never used really to believe what I read, but only thought it very strange, and a good deal too strange to be altogether true, though I never thought the men who wrote the book meant to tell lies. But I don't know exactly how to explain what I mean. But this much I will say, that I never believed in Greenland till I saw this Greenlander, and at first, hearing him talk about Greenland, only made me still more incredulous. For what business had a man from Greenland to be in my company? Why was he not at home among the icebergs, and how could he stand a warm summer's sun and not be melted away? Besides, instead of icicles, there were ear-rings hanging from his ears, and he did not wear bear-skins and keep his hands in a huge muff, things which I could not help connecting with Greenland and all Greenlanders. But I was telling about my being seasick and wanting to retire for the night. This Greenlander, seeing I was ill, volunteered to turn doctor and cure me. So, going down into the forecastle, he came back with a brown jug, like a molasses jug, and a little tin cannikin. And as soon as the brown jug got near my nose, I needed no telling what was in it, for it smelt like a still-house, and sure enough proved to be full of Jamaica spirits. Now, Buttons, said he, one little dose of this will be better for you than a whole night's sleep. There, take that now, and then eat seven or eight biscuits, and you'll feel as strong as the mainmast. But I felt very little like doing as I was bid, for I had some scruples about drinking spirits, and to tell the plain truth, for I'm not ashamed of it, I was a member of a society in the village where my mother lived, called the Juvenile Total Abstinence Association, of which my friend, Tom Laguerre, was president, secretary, and treasurer, and kept the funds in a little purse that his cousin knit for him. There was three and sixpence on hand, I believe, the last time he brought in his accounts, on a May day when we had a meeting in a grove on the river bank. Tom was a very honest treasurer, and never spent the society's money for peanuts, and besides all, was a fine, generous boy, whom I much loved but I must not talk about Tom now. When the Greenlander came to me with his jug of medicine, I thanked him as well as I could. For just then, I was leaning with my mouth over the side, feeling ready to die. But I managed to tell him I was under a solemn obligation never to drink spirits upon any consideration whatever, though, as I had a sort of presentiment that the spirits would now, for once in my life, do me good, I began to feel sorry that when I signed the Pledge of Abstinence I had not taken care to insert a little clause allowing me to drink spirits in case of seasickness. And I would advise temperance people to attend to this matter in future. 
and then if they come to go to sea there will be no need of breaking their pledges which i am truly sorry to say was the case with me and a hard thing it was too thus to break a vow before unbroken especially as the jamaica tasted anything but agreeable and indeed burnt my mouth so that i did not relish my meals for some time after even when i had become quite well and strong again i wondered how the sailors could really like such stuff but many of them had a jug of it besides the greenlander which they brought along to sea with them to taper off with as they called it but this tapering off did not last very long for the jamaica was all gone on the second day and the jugs were tossed overboard i wonder where they are now but to tell the truth i found in spite of its sharp taste the spirits i drank was just the thing i needed but i suppose if i could have had a cup of nice hot coffee it would have done quite as well and perhaps much better but that was not to be had at that time of night or indeed at any other time for the thing they called coffee which was given to us every morning at breakfast was the most curious tasting drink i ever drank and tasted as little like coffee as it did like lemonade though to be sure it was generally as cold as lemonade and i used to think the cook had an ice-house and dropped ice into his coffee but what was more curious still was the different quality and taste of it on different mornings sometimes it tasted fishy as if it was a decoction of dutch herrings and then it would taste very salty as if some old horse or sea beef had been boiled in it and then again it would taste a sort of cheesy as if the captain had sent his cheese parings forward to make our coffee of and yet another time it would have such a very bad flavor that i was almost ready to think some old stocking heels had been boiled in it what under heaven it was made of that it had so many different bad flavors always remained a mystery for when at work at his vocation our old cook used to keep himself close shut up in his caboose a little cook-house and never told any of his secrets though a very serious character as i shall hereafter show he was for all that and perhaps for that identical reason a very suspicious-looking sort of a cook that i don't believe would ever succeed in getting the cooking at delmonico's in new york it was well for him that he was a black cook for i have no doubt his color kept us from seeing his dirty face i never saw him wash but once and that was at one of his own soup pots one dark night when he thought no one saw him what induced him to be washing his face then i never could find out but i suppose he must have suddenly waked up after dreaming about some real estate on his cheeks as for his coffee notwithstanding the disagreeableness of its flavor i always used to have a strange curiosity every morning to see what new taste it was going to have and though sure enough i never missed making a new discovery and adding another taste to my palate i never found that there was any change in the badness of the beverage which always seemed the same in that respect as before it may well be believed then that now when i was seasick a cup of such coffee as our old cook made would have done me no good if indeed it would not have come near making an end of me and bad as it was and since it was not to be had at that time of night as i said before i think i was excusable in taking something else in place of it as i did and under the circumstances it would be unhandsome of them if my fellow-members of the temperance society should reproach me for breaking my bond 
which I would not have done except in case of necessity. But the evil effect of breaking one's bond upon any occasion whatever was witnessed in the present case, for it insidiously opened the way to subsequent breaches of it, which, though very slight, yet carried no apology with them. CHAPTER Nine. THE SAILORS BECOMING A LITTLE SOCIAL, REDBURN CONVERSES WITH THEM. The latter part of this first long watch that we stood was very pleasant, so far as the weather was concerned. From being rather cloudy it became a soft moonlight, and the stars peeped out, plain enough to count one by one. And there was a fine steady breeze, and it was not very cold and we were going through the water almost as smooth as a sled sliding downhill. And what was still better, the wind held so steady that there was little running aloft, little pulling ropes, and scarcely anything disagreeable of that kind. The chief mate kept walking up and down the quarter-deck with a lighted long nine cigar in his mouth by way of a torch, and spoke but few words to us the whole watch. He must have had a good deal of thinking to attend to, which high truth is the case with most seamen the first night out of port, especially when they have thrown away their money in foolish dissipation, and got very sick into the bargain. For when ashore, many of these sea officers are as wild and reckless in their way as the sailors they command. While I stood watching the red cigar in promenading up and down, the mate suddenly stopped and gave an order and the men sprang to obey it. It was not much, only something about hoisting one of the sails a little higher up on the mast. The men took hold of the rope and began pulling upon it, the foremost man of all setting up a song with no words to it, only a strange musical rise and fall of notes. In the dark night and far out upon the lonely sea it sounded wild enough, and made me feel as I had sometimes felt when in a twilight room a cousin of mine with black eyes used to play some old German airs on the piano. I almost looked round for goblins and felt just a little bit afraid, but I soon got used to this singing, for the sailors never touched a rope without it. Sometimes, when no one happened to strike up, and the pulling, whatever it might be, did not seem to be getting forward very well, the mate would always say, Come, men, can't any of you sing? Sing now and raise the dead. And then some one of them would begin, and if every man's arms were as much relieved as mine by the song, and he could pull as much better as I did with such a cheering accompaniment, I am sure the song was well worth the breath expended on it. It is a great thing in a sailor to know how to sing well, for he gets a great name by it from the officers, and a good deal of popularity among his shipmates. Some sea captains, before shipping a man, always ask him whether he can sing out at a rope. During the greater part of the watch, the sailors sat on the windlass and told long stories of their adventures by sea and land, and talked about Gibraltar and Canton and Valparaiso and Bombay, just as you and I would about Peck Slip and the Bowery. Every man of them, almost, was a volume of voyages and travels round the world and what most struck me was that, like books of voyages, they often contradicted each other, and would fall into long and violent disputes about who was keeping the foul anchor tavern in Portsmouth at such a time, or whether the king of Canton lived or did not live in Persia. 
or whether the barmaid of a particular house in Hamburg had black eyes or blue eyes, with many other mooted points of that sort. At last one of them went below and brought up a box of cigars from his chest, for some sailors always provide little delicacies of that kind to break off the first shock of the salt water after laying idle ashore, and also by way of tapering off, as I mentioned a little while ago but I wondered that they never carried any pies and tarts to sea with them instead of spirits and cigars. Ned, for that was the man's name, split open the box with a blow of his fist and then handed it round along the windlass, just like a waiter at a party, everyone helping himself. But I was a member of an anti-smoking society that had been organized in our village by the principal of the Sunday school there, in conjunction with the Temperance Association so I did not smoke any then, though I did afterward upon the voyage, I am sorry to say. Notwithstanding, I declined. With a good deal of unnecessary swearing, Ned assured me that the cigars were real genuine Havanas, for he had been in Havana, he said, and had them made there under his own eye. According to his account, he was very particular about his cigars and other things, and never made any importations, for they were unsafe, but always made a voyage himself direct to the place where any foreign thing was to be had that he wanted. He went to Havre for his woolen shirts, to Panama for his hats, to China for his silk handkerchiefs, and direct to Calcutta for his cheroots, and as a great joker in the watch used to say, no doubt he would at last have occasion to go to Russia for his halter, the wit of which saying was presumed to be in the fact that the Russian hemp is the best, though that is not wit which needs explaining. By dint of the spirits which, besides stimulating my fainting strength, united with the cool air of the sea to give me an appetite for our hard biscuit, and also by dint of walking briskly up and down the deck before the windlass, I had now recovered in good part from my sickness, and finding the sailors all very pleasant and sociable, at least among themselves, and seated smoking together like old cronies, and nothing on earth to do but sit the watch out, I began to think that they were a pretty good set of fellows after all, barring their swearing and another ugly way of talking they had, and I thought I had misconceived their true characters for at the outset I had deemed them such a parcel of wicked, hard-hearted rascals that it would be a severe affliction to associate with them. Yes, I now began to look on them with a sort of incipient love, but more with an eye of pity and compassion, as men of naturally gentle and kind dispositions, whom only hardships and neglect and ill-usage had made outcasts from good society. And not as villains who loved wickedness for the sake of it, and would persist in wickedness even in paradise if they ever got there and i called to mind a sermon i had once heard in a church in behalf of sailors when the preacher called them strayed lambs from the fold and compared them to poor lost children babes in the wood orphans without fathers or mothers and i remembered reading in a magazine called the sailors magazine with a sea-blue cover and a ship painted on the back about pious seamen who never swore and paid over all their wages to the poor heathen in india and how that when they were too old to go to sea these pious old sailors found a delightful home for life in the hospital where they had nothing to do but prepare themselves for their latter end 
and I wondered whether there were any such good sailors among my shipmates, and observing that one of them laid on deck apart from the rest, I thought to be sure he must be one of them. So I did not disturb his devotions, but I was afterwards shocked at discovering that he was only fast asleep with one of the brown jugs by his side. I forgot to mention, by the way, that every once in a while the men went into one corner where the chief mate could not see them, to take a swig at the halyards, as they called it, and this swigging at the halyards it was that enabled them to taper off handsomely, and no doubt it was this, too, that had something to do with making them so pleasant and sociable that night, for they were seldom so pleasant and sociable afterward, and never treated me so kindly as they did then. Yet this might have been owing to my being something of a stranger to them then, and our being just out of port, but that very night they turned about and taught me a bitter lesson, but all in good time. I have said that, seeing how agreeable they were getting, and how friendly their manner was, I began to feel a sort of compassion for them, grounded on their sad conditions as amiable outcasts, and feeling so warm an interest in them, and being full of pity, and being truly desirous of benefiting them to the best of my poor powers, for I knew they were but poor indeed, I made bold to ask one of them whether he was ever in the habit of going to church when he was ashore, or dropping in at the floating chapel I had seen lying off the dock in the East River at New York, and whether he would think it too much of a liberty if I asked him if he had any good books in his chest. He stared a little at first, but, marking what good language I used, seeing my civil bearing toward him, he seemed for a moment to be filled with a certain involuntary respect for me, and answered that he had been to church once some ten or twelve years before in London, and on a weekday had helped to move the floating chapel round the battery from the North River, and that was the only time he had seen it. For his books, he said he did not know what I meant by good books, but if I wanted the Newgate calendar and Pirate's Own, he could lend them to me. When I heard this poor sailor talk in this manner, showing so plainly his ignorance and absence of proper views of religion, I pitied him more and more, and, contrasting my own situation with his, I was grateful that I was different from him. And I thought how pleasant it was to feel wiser and better than he could feel, though I was willing to confess to myself that it was not altogether my own good endeavors, so much as my education, which I had received from others that had made me the upright and sensible boy I at that time thought myself to be. And it was now that I began to feel a good degree of complacency and satisfaction in surveying my own character, for before this I had previously associated with persons of a very discreet life, so that there was little opportunity to magnify myself by comparing myself with my neighbors thinking that my superiority to him in a moral way might sit uneasily upon this sailor, I thought it would soften the matter down by giving him a chance to show his own superiority to me in a minor thing, for I was far from being vain and conceited. Having observed that at certain intervals a little bell was rung on the quarter-deck by the man at the wheel, and that as soon as it was heard, some one of the sailors forward struck a large bell which hung on the forecastle. And, having observed that how many times soever the man astern rang his bell, the man forward struck his tit for tat, 
I inquired of this floating chapel sailor what all this ringing meant, and whether, as the big bell hung right over the scuttle that went down to the place where the watch below were sleeping, such a ringing every little while would not tend to disturb them and beget unpleasant dreams. And in asking these questions I was particular to address him in a civil and condescending way, so as to show him very plainly that I did not deem myself one whit better than he was, that is, taking all things together and not going into particulars. But to my great surprise and mortification, he, in the rudest land of manner, laughed aloud in my face, and called me a Jimmy Dukes, though that was not my real name, and he must have known it, and also the son of a farmer, though, as I have previously related, my father was a great merchant and French importer in Broad Street in New York. And then he began to laugh and joke about me, with the other sailors, till they all got round me. And if I had not felt so terribly angry, I should certainly have felt very much eck a fool. But my being so angry prevented me from feeling foolish, which is very lucky for people in a passion. CHAPTER Ten. He is very much frightened, the sailors abuse him, and he becomes miserable and forlorn. While the scene last described was going on, we were all startled by a horrid groaning noise down in the forecastle, and all at once someone came rushing up the scuttle in his shirt, clutching something in his hand, and trembling and shrieking in the most frightful manner, so that I thought one of the sailors must be murdered below. But it all passed in a moment, and while we stood aghast at the sight, and almost before we knew what it was, the shrieking man jumped over the bows into the sea, and we saw him no more. Then there was a great uproar. The sailors came running up on deck, and the chief mate ran forward, and learning what had happened, began to yell out his orders about the sails and yards. And we all went to pulling and hauling the ropes, till at last the ship lay almost still on the water. Then they loosed the boat, which kept pulling round the ship for more than an hour, but they never caught sight of the man. It seemed that he was one of the sailors who had been brought aboard dead drunk and tumbled into his bunk by his landlord, and there he had lain till now. He must have suddenly waked up, I suppose, raging mad with the delirium tremens, as the chief mate called it, and finding himself in a strange silent place and knowing not how he had got there, he rushed on deck and so, in a fit of frenzy, put an end to himself. This event happening at the dead of night, had a wonderfully solemn and almost awful effect upon me. I would have given the whole world and the sun and moon and all the stars in heaven, if they had been mine, had I been safe back at Mr. Jones's, or still better, in my home on the Hudson River. I thought it an ill-omened voyage, and railed at the folly which had sent me to sea, sore against the advice of my best friends, that is to say, my mother and sisters. Alas, poor Wellingborough, thought I, you will never see your home any more. And in this melancholy mood I went below, when the watch had expired, which happened soon after. But to my terror, I found that the suicide had been occupying the very bunk which I had appropriated to myself, and there was no other place for me to sleep in. The thought of lying down there now seemed too horrible to me and what made it worse was the way in which the sailors spoke of my being frightened, and they took this opportunity 
to tell me what a hard and wicked me i had entered upon and how that such things happened frequently at sea and they were used to it but i did not believe this for when the suicide came rushing and shrieking up the scuttle they looked as frightened as i did and besides that and what makes their being frightened still plainer is the fact that if they had had any presence of mind they could have prevented his plunging overboard since he brushed right by them however they lay in their bunks smoking and kept talking on some time in this strain and advising me as soon as ever i got home to pin my ears back so as not to hold the wind and sail straight away into the interior of the country and never stop until deep in the bush far off from the least running brook never mind how shallow and out of sight of even the smallest puddle of rain-water this kind of talking brought the tears into my eyes for it was so true and real and the sailors who spoke it seemed so false-hearted and insincere but for all that in spite of the sickness at my heart it made me mad and stung me to the quick that they should speak of me as a poor trembling coward who could never be brought to endure the hardships of a sailor's life for i felt myself trembling and knew that i was but a coward then well enough without their telling me of it and they did not say i was cowardly because they perceived it in me but because they merely supposed i must be judging no doubt from their own secret thoughts about themselves for i felt sure that the suicide frightened them very badly and at last being provoked to desperation by their taunts i told them so to their faces but i might better have kept silent for they now all united to abuse me they asked me what business i a boy like me had to go to sea and take the bread out of the mouth of honest sailors and fill a good seaman's place and asked me whether i ever dreamed of becoming a captain since i was a gentleman with white hands and if i ever should be they would like nothing better than the ship aboard my vessel and stir up a mutiny and one of them whose name was jackson of whom i shall have a good deal more to say by and by said i had better steer clear of him ever after for if ever i crossed his path or got into his way he would be the death of me and if ever i stumbled about in the rigging near him he would make nothing of pitching me overboard and that he swore to with an oath at first all this nearly stunned me it was so unforeseen and then i could not believe that they meant what they said or that they could be so cruel and black-hearted but how could i help seeing that the men who could thus talk to a poor friendless boy on the very first night of his voyage to sea must be capable of almost any enormity i loathed detested and hated them with all that was left of my bursting heart and soul and i thought myself the most forlorn and miserable wretch that ever breathed may i never be a man thought i if to be a boy is to be such a wretch and i wailed and wept and my heart cracked within me but all the time i defied them through my teeth and dared them to do their worst at last they ceased talking and fell fast asleep leaving me awake seated on a chest with my face bent over my knees between my hands and there i sat till at length the dull beating against the ship's bows and the silence around soothed me down and i fell asleep as i sat End of section 2 recording by james k white chula vista